Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning. So nice to see you all out here this morning. Um, I know we as a staff have just been looking forward with great anticipation to having more people in the building again, and it's just so nice to see you all uh, with us today. And if you're joining us online, of course, we want to thank you for taking part in our service. Uh, We trust that you've been encouraged by what you've heard already and that you will be ready and able to learn with us this morning. I have to tell you, that last song, Onward Christian Soldiers, is one of my favorite songs from when I was a kid. And I remember going to church, I grew up in a Baptist church, and going to the church, and if I get my Baptist ease right, I think it was a minister of music back in those days, before we got really cool and started calling them worship pastors, all right? So the minister of music on Sunday evenings would often lead a a hymn sing where people got to request their favorites. And I don't know if you've been in on these before or not, uh, but the basic style was if you were loud enough and quick enough and you yelled out the number from the hymn book, that was the song that they sang next in the service. And that was always, you know, kind of cool, listening to adults yell and trying to get their way really fast, and that was entertaining as a kid. Um, but I always wanted to sing Onward Christian Soldiers. And it was, it was my favorite song, and I would always try to get my parents to, to, to pick that song. And, and it's then that, that they kind of gave me my first lesson in social cues at church, you know. Just because you like a song and it's your favorite song doesn't mean that every time we have a hymn sing, you're supposed to call out your favorite numbers. And so anyway, that song is a great song, and it brings back uh, lots of, of good memories from my childhood. And I really appreciate Barry uh, singing that with us this morning. Hey, Barry. Oh, really? Okay, thanks. Got it. Got it? I haven't seen your phone. No. You got it? Nice. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Barry. Doesn't he do a great job leading worship? Give him a hand, guys. Yeah, it's just so good. Looking out for other people all the time. For the past three weeks, we've been doing a, a series titled Know Your Foe. We kicked off the series by looking at the reality of Satan and and what his true objective is, that he really wants to rule over everything that is God's. He wants to be God, and he wants to to have all the authority and, and glory that God has. Doug explained to us last week, in the last two messages, uh, but two weeks ago, reminding us that Satan uses lies and deceit to keep unbelievers in their unbelief and to eliminate believers' effectiveness in their witness for God. And so today, as we continue on with our message, yeah, yeah. Oh. Is that better? All right. All right. Sorry. Try to get this thing rolling here this morning. Um, so, as I said, Doug expanded on the last two weeks. He reminded us that Satan uses lies and deceit to keep unbelievers in their unbelief and to eliminate believers. I should have turned that off. Just a second. Sorry. Hello. Hey, Darren, how you doing? 
Well, I'm up to actually uh, preaching at uh, FBC this morning. You want me to just shorten up the message so we can go play disc golf? <laughs> you think everybody would appreciate it? Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Um, I probably have to pass this morning, but um, maybe next time. Oh, all right. Well, thanks for thinking of me. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. What a morning. All right. Whew. So, again. The second, just last week, Doug looked at uh, the fact that Satan attacks us directly by undermining our worth, telling us that our sin is too great, convincing us that the Christian life is no fun, and convincing us that we can make it on our own. And if you haven't been able to catch these previous messages, I would certainly encourage you to look back and watch them. I've appreciated the series, and especially the last two messages that Doug preached. So this morning, we're going to continue our series, and we're going to look at Satan's sneak attacks. And I'm sure that many of you in this room, and hopefully you're still with us online, you felt the tensions of the interruptions that Barry, Jason, and my phone have brought us this morning. We came here for a purpose. We came here to learn from the Word of God. We came here to fellowship together, and yet we keep getting distracted by people or situations. Now again, I want you to know that I did ask each of these guys to interrupt, uh, to help make that point, to give us an object lesson of sorts on, on how Satan works to distract us and to deceive us. And so, Barry cleaning up the music, it's a good thing, but the timing just wasn't great. Jason asked me not to wander too far. It helps, you know, to help those people online. That's a good thing, but uh, maybe a little distracting to, to stand up in the middle of service. And then me taking a call from Daring regarding disc golf is really actually quite important. But again, taking the, ta- the call at the time communicated that what he had was more important than what I was here to do this morning. And so today we are going to see in our message that, that oftentimes Satan tries to work on us through distraction. His attacks are not always clear. His attacks are not always so blatant that we're like, oh yeah, this is definitely. The radar. And rather than, rather than hit us front on, he just tries to distract us and to remove our attention from where it really should be. And so this morning, we're going to look at four different areas where Satan tries to distract us. He tries to distract us with other gospels. He tries to distract us by excusing the little sins. He distracts us with our weakness, and he also distracts us with our feelings. And so as we look at these distractions, we're also going to look at the means that we have been given to overcome them, to recognize them. I'm surprised as you are, all right? So let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for this morning. I just want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the warnings in it, the fact that you love us enough to say, hey, you have a foe, and this foe is going to oppose you. And, and sometimes he's, he's very out there with his attacks, but sometimes he, he just sneaks things in, walks a really line that's very close to the truth, but just far enough off that, that we are deceived and that we, we end up following into sin rather than following into obedience. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help us this morning as we, as we look into the Word together. I just want to pray that this would be a morning that um, you correct things in our lives. Lord, this would be a morning where people understand they're standing with you. And, Lord, that we would just be thankful for our time together. I just thank you in your name. Amen. 
So our main text for this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll take a look at the number of, a number of different verses from this passage. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and then 12 uh, through 15 as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll just read those for you. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted missions they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Just want to pop down to the end of that, that passage this morning and just, just look at the fact where Satan here is defined as he disguises himself as an angel of light. And so as we think of Satan's sneak attacks, this is, this is, these are the attacks where he kind of he makes things look good, makes things appeal to our, to our nature and to our feelings, and yet as we really look into them and as we compare these things with the Word of God, we'll realize that if we follow them, we're following him into sin. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul is stating, the righteous shall live by faith. And then we pop over to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at the first five verses there. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And so if we want to have an have a understanding of the genuine gospel, there's a few elements that we need to, to get a hold of. And the first one we see is that Christ died for our sins. You see, if we're going to understand the gospel, we have to understand sin. Sin is a huge issue for us, and the Bible uses over 30 different words to describe it. It's a very interesting study, actually, just to go through and look at all the different words used for sin and, and the ways that maybe things that we've just sort of accepted in life, we realize, wow, this is, this is something that God calls sin. And so there's over 30 different words. The one that is most commonly used uh, carries with it the idea of missing the mark. It's an archery term, and, and it's used to define as an archer, you know, draws back that bow and releases the arrow, that the, target flies, the, the arrow flies to the target, but it, it falls short of, of hitting the bullseye. And so in our lives, um, we are supposed to be aiming for holiness. We are supposed to be aiming for, for righteousness and, and obedience to God. But the truth is, the reality is, that so often we fall short of it. Now, the interesting thing about this word is not only does it carry the idea of missing a mark, but it also carries with it the idea of deliberately aiming for something else. So that's the interesting thing about sin, as, as, as we think about sin. It's not just like, man, I'm pulling that, I'm aiming for God's holiness, and well, shoot. I fell short. I guess, I guess I'm a sinner. See, what happens is God lays out his commandments for us. He lays it all out in the word, and he's given us this target to shoot for. 
And we draw back that arrow and, and we're ready to, you know, to live our lives and we go, well, there's the target that God has set, but, and we aim for something entirely different. We aim away from what God has for us. See, our sin isn't just a, a mistake. Our sin is a choice. It's a rebellion against God. It's choosing to, to disobey what he has for us and choosing to obey things that we want for ourselves. And you know what? I love to see the good in people. I love to, to trust that people are, are good and, you know, just as, 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 a, as a person, that they're not going to intentionally try to harm me. You know, of course, they're not going to harm me, but they're, they're not going to try to offend me, I guess would be a better word. But as I consider my relationship with God, and I consider all of our relationships with God, our, our nature, our bent, our, our, our desire, because we are fallen people, is to rebel against God, is to offend him. That even the nicest person that you will meet in life still has that bent to rebel against God. And unless something's done about that rebellion, unless something is done about the consequence of our sin, then we will spend eternity separated from God. So the first thing that we have to realize is sin is a huge issue. The second thing that we want to see is that Christ died for our sin. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that, that Jesus intervened for us by dying on the cross. He came to this world, he lived a life without sin, he was pure, he was holy, never once rebelled against the commandments of his father. And yet, he died on the cross to take the full punishment of sin. Not his own, he was sinless, but he died to take the punishment for your sin and for mine. And in doing that, he opened the door for us to be free from our foe, to receive a new nature through the power of his Holy Spirit. Then we look at the next part, it says that Christ that he rose again. And the fact that Jesus' death was successful in accomplishing this, this substitution for us is seen in the fact that he was buried and rose again. Jesus came offering eternal life. What confidence we could, could we have in our future if Christ didn't rise from the dead? The Savior who promised deliverance from sin and death, who does not rise from the dead, is not a, himself a Savior at all. The resurrection from Jesus from the dead is an essential element of the genuine gospel. It confirms that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf was received by the Father. Next thing that we have to understand is, is that we are sinners, that Christ died for our sin, but then we have a responsibility to receive what Christ accomplished for us by faith, and by faith alone. The Romans passage reminds us that it's the power of God, that the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. Belief is crucial. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 state that we receive the gospel by believing. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to understand that Christ accomplished everything for our salvation in his death and resurrection. There's nothing that we can do to add to it. There's nothing that we can do uh, to, to earn it. It's something that's been accomplished for us. It's, it's been completed for us. It's a gift that is held out by a loving Father that we receive simply by reaching out in faith and taking what has been provided. And the last thing that we want to concentrate on or focus on this morning is that this plan of salvation was part of God's eternal plan. It wasn't like as, as God watched unfold things, things unfold in the garden with, with the serpent and Adam and Eve, that God was up there in heaven going, ooh, didn't see that one coming. How, how are we going to deal with this? Oh, I know, we'll, we'll send Jesus. That wasn't the deal at all. In fact, in fact, the Bible tells us that even before the world was formed, Christ was known as the one who was going to redeem us. Take a look at that. It's found in uh, 1 Peter. It states this. 
knowing that you are a ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was man- made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. So again, before the foundation of the world, before, before the world was even created, the plan was in place, the plan of redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ was there, that Christ would come, live a sinful, sinless life, sinless life, die on the cross for our sins, raise again. And if we, through faith, believe in him, we have a restored relationship with him now and a guaranteed home with him forever in heaven. And that's the gospel. And it's our responsibility simply to receive that by faith. But sadly, Satan has used his cunning, his craftiness to present other gospels. Over the years, he has tried to convince people that, that it is faith but also works that will save us. He has, in more recent days, convinced people that the gospel is about having your best life now. Simply name what you want in prayer and claim it to be yours, and still other people, uh, other gospels try to tell us that God is not, will, is not his will for anyone to be sick or to suffer. Another area that Satan has attacked in, 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 the, in the gospel is the fact of eternal punishment. He's tried to hide the fact of God's judgment. He has tried to convince people that there isn't a hell or, or because God is such a loving God that he would never send somebody uh, to hell and judge them for eternity. Now, I have to admit, these false gospels, they have some appeal, don't they? The thought of no one ever spending an eternity in hell, that's, that's appealing. Just wonder, does, does hell have a face for you? And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, when I grew up in a, the first home that we lived in, grew up there for about 12 or 13 years, we grew up next to a retired couple, and I spent a ton of time in their yard. I would go over there, and, and he'd give me a little job of straightening nails. That is a monotonous job, by the way. You know, just he had this great big jar of nails, and I would just hammer them straight, and um, I, I guess, I don't think he ever paid me for that. It was just he got some free work out of me. He had a little putting green in his yard, which was basically just a soup can buried in the ground, and we'd go over there and, and putt a little bit and play around. We'd pick raspberries. I'd play with his grandkids. And his wife was sweet, probably one of the, the sweetest ladies in the neighborhood, you know, very kind, very gentle. And I remember um, our church was having some sort of outreach event. You know, I, was, I was probably in my, my older elementary years at that time, maybe early teens, and I invited her to church, and she, in her sweet way, just smiled with a little glint in her eye, and she says, oh dear, she said, I, I'm afraid it, it's too late for me now. You know, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any hope. And at 12 or 13, I, I didn't know what much to say past that, other than you should really come to church. But then I remember being in my late teens and, and early 20s, just one of those, one of those, like that 19, 20-ish, and I got word that she had passed away, you know, and that, that, that really crushed me, because for the first time, I, I, I knew somebody. I knew somebody that, that didn't know the gospel, that didn't receive the gospel. And I knew that she would be, you know, from the, when, when, as soon as she passed away, that she would be in hell forever. And, you know, that, that broke my heart. That really broke my heart. And, and the thought of hell not being real can appeal to our emotion. But the Bible is clear. That hell is real. And that Christ loved us enough, God loved us enough to send Jesus to, to prevent us from having to spend that eternity. To rescue us from having to spend an eternity separated from him. 
But in Satan's way, he tries to appeal to her emotions. He tries to appeal to her feelings and say, no, a loving God just, just couldn't do that. He would never follow through with judging somebody forever. And so he's sort of over the years began to lull us into a complacency as believers not really dwelling on the seriousness of hell and not really dwelling on the, the reality that these people that we come in contact with that don't know Jesus will spend an eternity in hell if, if they don't put their faith and trust in Christ. And for those that don't believe, we've kind of just lulled into, well, hell isn't real, God is love. And so why would they turn from their sin? Why would they reach out to a savior if there's no eternal consequence to be saved from or rescued from? And so we see that, that one of Satan's sneak attacks is to bring in that gospel and say, ah, there, there is no hell. The prosperity gospel, it has its appeal as well, doesn't it? It would be, it'd be easy for us to believe that just following Jesus means that I just pray for something and then, then I receive it, or, or maybe in life that, that I don't have any suffering or I don't have trial or I'm wealthy. And you know, there are, there are Christians that go through life uh, very well off with very little suffering. But that's not what Jesus said is, 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 in, is in the future for everybody. In fact, Jesus is pretty clear in, in John chapter 16. He says this, I have said these things to you that, it may, that, you, uh, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, here Jesus assures us of the fact that there is going to be tribulation in life. There is going to be difficulty. Tribulation can actually mean severe trial or suffering. The difference between the prosperity gospel and the genuine gospel is that the genuine gospel recognizes that there will be trials and suffering, but even in the middle of such suffering, we can have peace because of a relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. The point here is, is that Satan uses different gospels, different messages, things that, that seem to walk very, very close to the truth, but yet just defer far enough off so that people are left still in their sin, or people are left in complacency to say, well, eh, it doesn't really matter. But folks, it's, it's our job to make sure that we study the word, to know the genuine gospel, to share it with those that don't yet know Christ and to be assured of the great power of the gospel to save people from their sin. Another sneak attack, the second sneak attack that we're going to look at today is that, that Satan, he has a good way of distracting us into ignoring the little sins. You know, I think we've heard that phrase before, and for the, the most part, this takes on the form of making sure that we're, we aren't sinning in ways that people notice. Right? We're not sinning in ways that people notice. There's an old saying, I think, that helps us understand this line of thinking, and it says this, I don't drink, cuss, smoke, or chew, and I don't go with girls who do. That's a winner, isn't it? I don't drink, cuss, smoke, or chew, and I don't go with girls who do. And so basically, this whole idea is, are we taking care of the outside? Does the outside look good? We, we're, we're hiding, we're not doing these big sins. And we sort of we come up with this list in our own mind of, of things that I'm not going to do. And if I avoid doing those things, I convince myself that I'm just knocking the Christian life right out of the park. Man, I, I'm doing so good. Everybody looks at me and thinks that I'm, I'm looking good, I'm acting good, you know. But the problem is, and I have lived this many times in my life, the outside looked good. But the problem is the inward being is a mess with things like jealousy, anger, covetousness, unforgiveness, pride, lust, deceit, etc., etc., etc. 
You know what? We may even things like gossip pass through our lips as feel pretty good about it, especially if we define that as a prayer request. I just wanted you to pray for and, and tell a tale that really wasn't your tale to tell, you know? And so we have to be really, really on guard. We have to be aware that these little sins are actually a big deal to God. I'm just going to look at a couple with you this morning, and, and, and I was quite maybe, maybe surprised isn't the right word, but, but intrigued to find out the seriousness of these little sins. The first thing I guess I would like to ask you this morning is, have you ever held a grudge? Has somebody ever done something to you that you didn't appreciate, that you didn't like, they offended you in some way, they, they were unkind to you in some way, and you just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to hold that against them. I'm not going to let that go. And every time you see them, that wells up inside of you, you know, that time when they did whatever. And I do want us to understand as, as we move forward this morning that sometimes, some things, some people have hurt us very, very deeply. They have wronged us in, in great ways. And it's not like we can just go, oh, I'm going to forgive them and walk away and pretend that those things didn't happen. If you've ever read uh, Chip Ingram's book, True Spirituality, I think he does a fantastic job on defining the whole process of forgiveness. I would, I would definitely recommend that as a small group study. Uh, again, it's called True Spirituality. And he goes through Romans chapter 12. And he just highlights a number of things. But he gets to, the, to a, a chapter on forgiveness. He talks about some things that happened in his life and how hurtful that they were. And how, as a Christian, he realized that he needed to forgive. And, and he, he, he tried to forgive. But yet, it still hung on. And then he defines the fact that, that we as Christians, one of the things that we start with is just saying to God, God, I want to forgive this hurt. I want to forgive this wrong. And begin there. And then he, he defines this process that we go through from being willing to forgive to almost starting to feel forgiveness and then finally actually being to the point where this person who has hurt us, we pray for them and we want the very best for them. It's a really, really interesting study. So I, I want us to understand here, as, as before we proceed, that some things are, are simpler to forgive than others. Some hurts run a lot deeper than others. Sometimes we need counsel and, and guidance in order to work through the process of forgiveness. But if we hang on to unforgiveness, we have to see how serious that is. Matthew chapter 6, it says this, 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Or your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a serious thing. This does not mean that as a Christian, if I'm holding on to unforgiveness, that I'm no longer a child of God, that somehow I've lost my salvation. Again, our salvation is based on the finished work of Christ alone, not our works, not the things that we do or do not do. We have to understand here that there's this, there's this parental relationship, father to child, that we have with, the, with, with our Heavenly Father. And as we come to him and as we pray and we ask for forgiveness, one of the things that he calls us to do in our lives is to be like him and to reflect him. And if we are not willing to forgive other people, we are sinning. And therefore, our fellowship with the Father can never be right because we're holding on to sin in our hearts. Gut question sums it up as follows. To emphasize the importance of restoring broken relationships with our brothers and sisters, 
Jesus states that asking for God's forgiveness for one's own sins, all the while withholding forgiveness from someone else, is not only bizarre, but hypocritical. We cannot possibly walk with God in true fellowship if we refuse to forgive others. So a Satan's sneak attack is to, to, to help us to excuse or to allow us to excuse the little sins, but we have to understand the little sins have great consequences. Let's look at one other one as well. Another one that's a little sin that we sort of excuse, um, but really has serious implications in our spiritual life, and that one is covetousness. Vines defines covetousness as a desire to have more. You know, I've battled this one in, in my life, I'll be honest with you. You know, there's those times where you're just in life, you think, man, if I just had a better vehicle, maybe a better vacation, maybe just a little bigger bank account, or just a basic desire to keep up with the Joneses. Hey, I just, I just want a little more. I want you to understand, I don't, I don't think it's wrong uh, to be going through life and to see something nice and, and to admire it and to say, man, that would be enjoyable, that would be nice to have. I'm not talking about that, but really it's when we look at something and we base our happiness or our satisfaction on whether or not we obtain that thing that we've set our eyes on. You know, maybe I'll never be happy until I'm driving a better vehicle. Maybe I'll never be happy until I, I have this vacation. And what we've done there, and it's very interesting, Paul brings it out in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's really interesting, isn't it? That that coveting, that, that wanting more, that not being satisfied with, with what we have or not being satisfied until we get that next thing. The Bible tells us here it's idolatry. What we're saying is, is God, I'm, I'm not quite satisfied with you. I'll be really satisfied when I get that vehicle. God, I'm not, I'm not quite satisfied with, with, with this vacation that we have I'd be really satisfied if we had more. So that's more important in me, to me than my relationship with you. Again, is it wrong to look at something, to admire it, and to say, wow, that would be fun or that would be an enjoyable experience? No. But when we begin to place that thing at such a high priority that, that we say, I'm not going to be happy or fulfilled till I have it, that's the point where, where that covetousness is, has become an idol to us. That object has become an idol to us. And again, it's not one of the big sins. It's not one of those things that, that people would really notice if we were doing, unless we're talking about covetousness all the time. I really want, I really want, I really want. But we do have to understand that, that it's those little things, those little things that nick away in our hearts that are so easy to excuse that Satan is using and he's really happy if we fall into those trends because they greatly impact our relationship with God. And yet so often we're just willing to excuse them and sort of push them under the rug and say, oh, they're not that big of a deal. Third way that Satan likes to distract us is, is through our weaknesses. And I know I give into this distraction a lot as well. You know, God calls us to do something. He asks us to do something. And right away, there's a hundred excuses that come up in our minds as to reasons as to why God must be wrong in choosing me to do this. There's a real interesting conversation in the Bible between Moses and God. We were talking about it at our staff retreat just a couple weeks ago. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, we're not going to hit all of the verses. I just want to give you a little background on the, on the story and, and just look at this, this conversation that happens between God and Moses. So again, if you're not familiar with the story, um, 
I'll give you a little bit of background. Moses had tried about 40 years previous to this, to this situation to deal with the mistreatment of his people, the, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, at the hands of the Egyptians. His method of dealing with it went terribly wrong, and he had to flee Egypt because for, for, he, was, he was going to be killed if he stayed in that area. And he ended up becoming a shepherd in the land of Midian, which was, which was an absolute disgrace, by the way, for Moses. To go from being raised in Pharaoh's home to becoming a shepherd was an absolute disgrace. So for the next 40 years, he's living in Midian, and then one day he's, he's tending to his sheep. He's, he's, he's out, in, out in the field somewhere, and he sees a bush that's on fire. And, and it never, it doesn't burn up, it just stays on fire. And, and so the Bible says that he, he walks over to, to take a look. He says, what's going on here? I've I got to see what's going on. And, and so he, he, he enters into, as he, as he approaches the bush, you know, God speaks to him out of it. And God tells Moses that he's going to free the Hebrew people from slavery and that he's going to use Moses as his spokesman to accomplish this, this end. And Moses responds in essence by saying, well, God, I think you've got the wrong guy. I tried that 40 years ago and I washed out pretty hard. But God's response is, it doesn't matter who you are, I am going to be with you. The conversation continues on with Moses arguing and he says, nobody's going to believe me. They will think that I'm doing this in my own strength. And God says, don't worry. I'll let people know that I'm with you. And he says, take the shepherd's staff and throw it onto the ground. And Moses obeys God and he throws the staff onto the ground and immediately it turns into a serpent. And then God says, pick up the, pick up the serpent. He picks up the serpent and it turns right back into a staff. You know? And God's saying, listen, I'm going to let people know that I am with you. Have you ever stopped to consider what that was like for Moses? Number one, seeing this bush that's on fire not being burned up, then throwing your staff on the ground, it turns into a snake, and I don't think it was like a little garter snake. It's probably quite big based on what we, we see later on happening there with his, his snake devouring the, the Egyptian magician's snakes. This would have been very, very intimidating, very weird. He might have thought, what did Zipporah put in my tea this morning? Like, am I hallucinating or, you know, what's going on? Like, why, why is this happening? But here he's having this conversation with God, and, and let's look as he continues to argue, Exodus 4, 10 to 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. God's basically, or Moses is basically saying to God, God, you want me to be your spokesman, but I can't even speak properly. You definitely have the wrong guy. And I love God's response. He says this, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God's done with Moses' excuses. So Moses, if I've asked you to do something, I can give you the ability to do it. I will enable you to do what I have asked you to do. And so after a little bit more debate and a little bit of compromise, uh, Moses finally surrenders to God, and, and God uses him to lead the children of Israel out of slavery. Can you relate to Moses? No, I sure can. Maybe God has asked you to witness to a coworker or a neighbor. Maybe he's asked you to encourage somebody who's hurting. Visit someone who is shut in. Confront someone. Serve somebody who's in need. The list could go on and on, and so can our excuses. I wouldn't know where to begin the conversation. Would that person really want me to visit them? I know I'm not perfect. How in the world can I confront somebody else about their sin? I, I just, I don't have the time. I wouldn't know what to say. And I was thinking about this, and as I was thinking about all these excuses, I thought about how crafty Satan really was. 
You see, in his fall, his whole thing was, I will, I will. I am going to be God. And then when he comes to Eve in the garden, he says, you will be like God. And Satan, what he did was he took Eve and he said, instead of looking at God, look within yourself. Look within yourself. You can rule. You can, you can do it, basically, was his, was his mantra. But here's the thing. Whenever we look within ourselves and we see ourselves rather than God, when we do exactly what Satan's asked us to do by looking at ourselves, you know what, guys? We're never going to find the strength. We're never going to find the courage. We're never going to find the confidence because it's not within us. It's not within our abilities to do what God has called us to do. The Apostle Paul references this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are we weak on our own? Absolutely. But as a believer, our strength comes from recognizing our weaknesses and then trusting in the grace of God to enable us to do what he has called us to do. Last thing we're going to look at this morning is, is the fact that Satan um, tries to distract us and he uses a sneak attack with our feelings. Now, feelings in and of themselves are not bad. You know, in fact, in, in, in um, Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Last night I had the privilege of going out to supper with Amanda. We celebrated our, our 22nd wedding anniversary. As I look across the table at her, I was thinking, you know, I'm so glad for feelings. I'm so glad for emotions. I am so glad that when I look across at her that, that I still, you know, get that little flutter in, in, inside. You know, that when we reach out, we walk together, we hold hands, that there's this, there's this sense of security and happiness that I, that I have as I, as I enjoy my relationship with my wife. So feelings and emotions in and of themselves are not bad. They're a gift from God. They're things to be used even to to enjoy what he has given to us. But the problem with our feelings and emotions is too often we begin to make them our guideposts. We begin to make them the the determining factor in our decisions. And scripture is pretty clear that this is not a good idea. We're going to look at three verses pretty quickly. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 28, 26 is a little bit more blunt, quite a bit more blunt. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. You see, if we trust our feeling, it's easy to convince ourselves that, that I'm okay to say something hurtful to someone who said something hurtful to me. If I trust my feelings, well, then I can easily allow myself to well, behave, become a little bit flirty at work. If I trust my feelings, it's easy to spend more than I can afford. If we trust our feelings, it's easy to convince ourselves that God no longer loves us. If we trust our feelings, we can make a real mess of things. Our feelings, need to be, our, our feelings can be deceitful, and we always need to make sure that we're balancing our feelings or guiding our feelings with the truth of God's word. The Bible tells me to love my enemies and pray for those that have mistreated me. The Bible tells me to be faithful to my spouse. The Bible says that I am to be good stewards of the finances that God has blessed me with. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Does life get hard at times? 
<laughs> Absolutely. Is it always easy to subject our feelings to the truth of Scripture? Absolutely not. I was drawn to a really interesting passage in the book of Lamentations this week. Now, that's a, that's a book that's a tough read. It's a real tough read as God carries out his judgment on, on people and his people who have disobeyed him, who have rebelled against him. And the author writes, and he's just writing from a point of anguish. In Lamentations 3, 16 uh, through 18, he says this. He, and he's referring to the Lord here, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. This guy's in a real bad spot. He just, he's going through such a hard time. He's feeling the chastisement of God. And remember that God's chastisement is always to bring us back to himself. He's feeling that chastisement. He feels the weight, but it's, it's hard. He said, I don't even know what happiness is anymore. There's no hope in the Lord even for me. And then just a couple verses later, he goes on. He says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are, tr- they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. As we go through difficulties in life, as we, as we are led into decisions, it's so easy to be misled by our feelings. Here, as he's, as he's going through this difficulty, he said, there's no hope even for me in the Lord. I don't even know what happiness is. And how did he remedy that? He remedied that by going back to what he knew to be true about God. Even though he maybe didn't feel it at the time, he reminded himself what was true. He reminded of himself of Scripture, and he faced that, his feelings with the truth of Scripture. And today, as we, as we think about Satan's sneak attacks, how, how do we combat them? How, how is it that we, that we recognize them? How is it that we, we, we defeat them? And really, it's quite simple. We need to grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures. We need to know the truth of God's Word so that we recognize when a false gospel comes our way. So that we recognize when our feelings are misleading us. So that we recognize that, that when a, a situation presents itself to us, we can say, I know what the truth is. I know which way I'm to go. Psalms 119, 105 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This verse has special meaning to me for a couple reasons, but, uh, but it's always helped me to really understand, I guess, the importance of bringing Scripture into my life because it, it lights the way, it illuminates the way. When I was first a youth pastor um, working out of Rossi Baptist Church in, in Rossi, New Brunswick, um, me and a couple other youth pastors got together and we ran a, an outdoor boys, a senior high outdoor boys adventure camp. And there, during the week, we'd take the guys hiking and rappelling and climbing and caving and kayaking. And each, each, each event was really designed to push the boys a little bit further. Go further than you're comfortable, you know. And, and it was really neat to see the way that, that they overcame some of their challenges. But one of my challenges was caving. This cave that we went to, it was just this little opening in the side of a hill, and you kind of had to slide down, you know, into the cave, and then, and then it was just low. You didn't stand up and walk through it. You kind of crawled through it. So you crawl through this. It's just this one little, one little pathway uh, underground, and you get to the end, and, and there's just this little opening above you, and you pop up through this opening, and it's what we called the bat cave because there's bats in it, and it was quite large, and there you could stand up and different things, and we'd spend some time in there, and... and uh, 
just do a devotion and, and worship and stuff like that. And then the challenge came in finding our way back and popping back down through that hole and then making our way to the opening. And where we would challenge the boys is that we would say, we have to do this with the lights off. And I don't know if you've ever been in a cave and in the underground, but like the darkness is so black, it's so thick that you can, you can hold your hand like right up to your nose and, and not see your hand there. You can sense something, but you can't see it. And we'd be crawling back, and it's amazing the tricks that your mind starts to play on you. You know, as you're, as you're going back, you'd, you'd be ducking under things that weren't there. Your mind pictures this, this thing, and it's like, oh, I got a duck, or you're trying to climb over something that isn't there. And you're totally disoriented. And I was scared to death. I hated it. We did it for a few years, and every time we're just crawling back, and I'm praying, oh, Lord, just let one of those boys chicken out, because it's not going to be me. I was so scared. I, I absolutely hated it. But then when we turned on the lights, when somebody finally broke and turned on the light, I was like, yes, Jesus. You know, I was very thankful for that. But also you could see, right? You could see and the way was so much easier. You weren't being deceived by things that weren't there. You weren't being confused by pathways that, that maybe, you know, you thought were there, but they weren't. You could just see the way and you knew which way to go. And so as we think about Satan's sneak attack and we think about him as our foe, how do we overcome him? We overcome him by knowing our, our scripture and being obedient to that. And Doug's going to refer to that more again next week as well. So, this morning, I hope you've learned to recognize or you've been brought to mind or reminded of some of Satan's sneak attacks. Maybe there's some of those things in your life you've been, you've been just sort of giving into. You've, you've realized, hey, you know, maybe I, I, I've been letting my feelings guide me. Or I've been thinking of my own weaknesses rather than trusting in God. Maybe I've been deceived into believing a gospel that isn't true. Wherever you're at this morning, I just, I just trust that you've seen from Scripture, you know the truth, and you realize, hey, I, I can make these corrections in my life. If you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you don't know Christ, of course, we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to share the gospel with you so that you can know for sure that you have a right relationship with God and that your sins are forgiven. So today, as we close, let's just close in a word of prayer, and then we will be dismissed. Father, I just want to thank you. I thank you for your word. Thank you for exposing our enemy to us. Thank you for letting us know what he's up to and the way that he tries to, to deceive and to trick us. Father, I just thank you that your word gives us the truth, the guidance, Lord, so that we can see which is the right way to go. And God, I just want to pray that you would just help us this week to make wise choices based on your word, to say no to Satan's deception and to say yes to being obedient to you. I just thank you in your name. Amen. Again, I just want to thank you for, for being with us this morning. Again, if you've joined us online, thank you for, for joining us online. We look forward to seeing everybody next week. And again, our numbers are up. Let people know, and we're excited to see a, a full house, as full as we can get uh, in, the, in the days and the weeks to come. Mm-hmm.